Well, how are we doing, Metro? Man, am I glad that you're here. If you are joining us at our video campus or if you are joining us on the World Wide Web, we especially welcome you. But I think for everybody in the room or online, I think it is a great place for you to be. I think Metro is a place for you to take your next steps with God and toward God. And I know that sounds risky for some of us, but I think that's why we're here, right? So you might as well open your heart to the things of God. Take that next step. Say, God, I am willing to hear from you. So here's what we got to do. Are you ready for this? You guys ready to go a little bit further with this little study we're, we're calling behind the scenes? Anybody? Okay. Uh, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to tell you, I have to tell you a story in order to tell you another story because there's always a story behind the story. There's always a backstory to the story. See, our society, we've been talking about this, our culture has a way of pushing one name to the top. Our culture has a way of celebrating the superstar, but we've been talking about this, that there is always a nameless, faceless army of people who are behind every story, behind every invention, behind every movement of man. There's always a story behind the story. There's always an army behind the celebrity that gets lifted to the top. Now we're calling this little series called, we're calling it Behind the Scenes. Because it is true, not only in the world, but in the church as well, in the church that Jesus is building, that there is uh, this idea so oftentimes that it is the guy on stage, it is the people in the band, it is those kind of people, the superstars that build the church. But I want to tell you something, if this hasn't been clear enough so far, that the kind of church that Jesus wants to build does not so much depend on the talents of men and women who get to stand on stages like this but it rests on the sacrifices of the many. It is built on the sacrifices of the many. Are you all with me on that? Are we all together? So let me tell you a story in order to tell you another story in a little bit. And this first story is probably one that you have heard. It comes from the days of ancient history where one kingdom would war against another kingdom, where one king would line up and, and fight another king, right? And this particular fight, this particular battle dates back nearly 3,000 years in human history. And it takes place in this valley lined by mountains on both sides. And on one side, you have the, the armies of Israel lining up for battle against, on the other side, the, the dominant empire called the Philistine Empire. And they were about to do battle. But this was a different era of war and nations would often choose their battle place and they would often choose their battle time. They would actually agree to meet. And what was funny is, is some of the traditions that went around these sort of battles. This is true of history that Oftentimes, armies would line up and they would get together for not just a day or two, but not just for a week or two, but over a month, usually 30 to 40 days, they would line up on both sides of this valley or this land between them. And, and each morning, each army would come and they would like assemble a line and, and they would try to taunt the other guy. They would literally pound their chests and do their war cries and paint their faces. And it was a way of psychological terror. It was a way of getting into the mind of the other guy. And they would, you know, taunt things like in football, right? You know, you line up for the, for the deal in football and all the, all the trash talk that goes on. Like, your mama's so ugly that when, when you were born, you slapped your mama. That's how ugly she is, right? Or you're, you're, you're so stupid that you make my sister look smart. 
Right? That's what people do, right? It's that trash talking. And friends, it was the same thing back in this days. These armies would, would, would line up and they would literally try to get in the head of the other guy. And they would try to strike fear into the hearts of the other guy. And so this story can be found in the Bible book called 1 Samuel. And it's in chapter 17. It's an amazing thing. And we're introduced to a couple key players in this battle scene. And the first guy we're introduced to is the champion of the Philistines. And this guy is as big and as bad as it comes, right? His name is, anybody? Goliath, right? This is one of the most famous stories in all of human history. But Goliath comes out and what the Philistines would do is they would line up and everybody's beating their chest and they're all yelling and screaming. But one guy, the champion of, of the Philistine army, he would come to the front and he would begin to taunt the other guy. Now, history records him as being a giant of a man. Literally, uh, if, if our numbers can be converted correctly into ancient times, he would be about nine foot tall. This is crazy big. Right? And, and it says that his armor alone weighed over 100 pounds. Uh, he was as big and as bad as it comes. They said his spear that he, that he held in his hand, the, just the tip of the spear was 15 pounds. So this guy was big and bad, just kind of like, like me, right? Okay, not so much. Uh, but, but this guy for 40 days would come out and he would trash talk the people of Israel. He would, he would trash talk the God of Israel. And, it, and the scripture records this one little line of the Israeli army. It says that they were terrified. And I'm thinking to myself, no duh, right? I would be terrified too, right? If I'm lining up and the leader of their army is nine foot tall and he's the first guy I got to face, he's out front. I'm thinking, I'll stay in the back. I'm happy here. We'll let you guys go fight it out and we'll be all fine, right? And, and so this was going on for day after day after day. And the people of Israel, it says that their, their hearts began to turn. In other words, fear stepped in. And they started to move away from this battle. Their hearts had moved away, right? They were there physically, but their hearts, they were going, we are going to lose. And that's when we're introduced to another character. This is a young man, probably about 15 to 17 years old. His name was, anybody? David. David, David is introduced to the scene. And, and David is there only to feed his older brothers, which is pretty funny deal. Like he shows up with lunch from Taco Bell to his brothers and like, hey, they're not feeding you well. Here's a little lunch that mom sent, right? And so David's there and his big brothers are going like, David, get out of here. And when he is there feeding his brothers, he literally hears this Goliath character come off the hill down into the center valley. And he hears him taunting not only the people of God, but he hears the Philistine giant taunting God himself. And David has just enough brass about him that he's like, nobody, and I mean nobody, I don't care who you are, nobody talks down on the people of Israel and nobody talks down on the God of Israel, nobody. And so he decides he's going to do something about it. And he, and he begins to ask these questions like, who, who, who's in charge here? What's going on? Why do we let this guy do this? And what's going to be given to the man who, who goes and slays this giant? And they're like, hey, if you slay this giant, the king is going to make you rich, plus he's going to give you his daughter in marriage. So you're like in the royal family if you take this guy out. And David's going, huh, it's not a bad deal. It's not a bad deal. And so David comes forward. And he says, I will fight this giant. And everybody laughs. Everybody mocks, even his own brothers mock him. 
And so they try to load him up with armor and he can't hardly carry it. I mean, he's just a kid and there's this giant out there and they're like, you got to get ready for battle. You got to get dressed for battle. And they're trying to weigh him down. He says, forget it. I can't do this. And so literally what we learn is that David runs into battle simply wearing what a shepherd boy wears. And we learn that as David runs into battle, it says this, that, that he swoops down and he gathers up some stones. He doesn't fight with a sword. He doesn't fight with a javelin or a spear. He, he knows a slingshot. He's a shepherd boy. So a lion's coming toward a sheep. He throws rocks through this sling. So he's used to this. And that's the only way he knows how to fight. That's the only way he knows how to do business, right? And so he picks up five rocks, it says. And he runs into the heart of battle. And it was interesting, as David begins to run, we're gonna pick up the story here because David is coming off one side of the valley mountain and into the valley, and, and, and the other way, Goliath is starting to head toward him and they're getting ready to clash in battle. And here's what happens. It says that Goliath, he looks over and he saw David was little more than a boy, glowing in, with health and handsome. So David must have been a good looking guy, right? And he, was, and he despised him. And so this Goliath of a man, this giant of a man who had been in battle over and over all of his life was probably beat up and probably wasn't the best looking cat around. He was tough. And he had a jealousy of this young man. I find that interesting, right? And it says that he despised him. And then it says this, verse 43, he starts to trash David. He says, am I a dog that you come out at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, now we'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. But David's like, you can't, you're not the only guy who can talk. Teenagers know how to talk, right? <laughs> and so the, he, David comes back with his own trash talking. You're gonna love this. He says, David says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spirit and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Woo, come on. And it says, the Lord God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord God, he will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. This very day, I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals. So did you notice something here? Did you notice what David just did? Goliath said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to give you to the carcasses. And David says, I'm going to give the whole army, the whole army to the carcasses, right? To the birds, right? The whole army's going down because this isn't small talk. This is God talk, right? And so it says this, it says this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all of those uh, here gathered for battle will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord God saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And so David rushes into battle and he starts to swing his little slingshot. He doesn't have one of those rubber things you buy at Walmart. He's got a, a, some sort of cloth and he starts to whip it around and he's got that stone going. And as he charges and this Goliath think it's going to be hand to hand and David's, I'm not even going to get close to you. <laughs> and he lets that thing fly. And the scripture records that it, it nails Goliath right between the eyes. He's a sure shot, right? He's been doing this since he was a kid. And in one fell swap, he takes Goliath down. And this is the best part of the whole story. What did he say? He says, I'm going to cut your head off. And so as this guy is down and he's probably going, what in the world just hit me? The audaciousness of David. He runs up on top of that giant who is down and he is like, you know, maybe he's out. He doesn't even know what hit him. It says that he stands on the chest of Goliath and he unsheaths the sword. 
and takes off the head of the giant. Now, King Saul is watching this, and the people are watching this, and it says at that very moment when he takes the head of Goliath off, it says that the armies of the Philistines, they turn and ran. And that makes sense, right? I'm thinking, like, if I'm in that army, like, there goes our champion, there goes our biggest and baddest, and it was taken out by one of their kids. Imagine all the others, right? And, and so it says that literally they chase them down, and it's a massacre. The Philistines fall to the nation of Israel. Now, here's... The turning point of the story. That's a cool part. We could spend all kinds of time right there. But I tell you that just to get to this part of David's story. This is really fascinating. So the battle's all over, and it says that Goliath, is, is, his head is being carried around by David. It's like his trophy. It's his prize. He's like, this guy's not going to taunt anybody anymore. And he comes, and he's walking back to the side of the people of Israel. And here's where it picks up in verse 55, chapter 17, 1 Samuel. It says, as Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines. So this is before that. He's watching this happen. He's like, oh my goodness, this kid is running toward Goliath. And he goes, as Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, uh, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young boy or that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know who he is. He's like out of left field. He's like a new recruit. He just showed up with Taco Bell this morning. I don't know how he got out there. I don't, it's not my fault. If he dies, don't hold it against me, right? The king said, you find out whose son this young man is. And then, let's fast forward to the end of the battle. As soon as David returned from killing, so the writer is, is recounting what was going on behind the scenes. You get that? And now he's fast forwarding. The battle's over. And David's walking in with the head of the giant. Check this out. It says, as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Now he's going like, yeah, this guy's my guy. He was my plan the whole time. I was working with this kid since he was a kid, man. I'm like, I'm, he's my man, right? I'm going to bring him right to the king, right? You see what's going on here? And he brings this young guy to the king, and Abner took him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's what? Head. Verse 58, <laughs> the king asked, Whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse from the town of Bethlehem. And that's the story right there. That's the name we push to the top. That's like the superstar. That's the name that goes in lights. That's the name that goes in print. David is this, uh, this uh, rising star in the people of Israel. And as, as you might know, the history around this, David becomes not only the rising star of the army of Israel, but he becomes the, anybody? the king over all of Israel. And he does an amazing job because he unites the kingdom under his rulership and under his leadership, the nation begins to prosper and they dominate the, the, the land and the people, it says, live in peace under David. And the people celebrate and the people start cheering his name and his name is lifted to the top. But here's the story I really want to tell you because this is an amazing rise to fame that David has, but there is somebody behind the scenes, every step along the way in David's life. If you were to have like an old-fashioned Bible with paper and all that kind of stuff, all you'd have to do is turn over a chapter or, or, or so, or a page or so, and you would come to chapter 18, the very next chapter. The scene's not even over. The whole thing is like going down. And we learn that, the, that King Saul has his son nearby. 
And his son watches this entire thing go down. And, and, and he begins to watch even as Saul and David talk for the very first time. And something we learn happens in the heart of Saul. Like there's moments in your life, maybe I'm guessing, that there's moments in your life where you see something, see a, a noble action, a heroic action. Maybe it's a movie. I don't know. But there's probably something in your life that one time or another that has been stirred greatly because of a moment. Right? There's something that just changes in you and grows in you and leaps inside of you. And this is what happens to Saul's son. His name was Jonathan. And listen to this. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, so he's watching this, and David just wraps up this conversation with Saul. It says that Jonathan became one in what? Spirit with David. Something leaped inside of him and said, I got to get to know this guy. There's something about this guy that is extraordinary. There's something about this guy that, that is not normal, that, is, that there's God, there's a faith there that's written all over this kid's heart. And I need to become friends with him. I got to connect with him. And it says, they became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And then from that day, Saul kept David with him. Saul kept David with him. The king brings David into the household of the king. Why? Because he's the biggest, baddest warrior around now. And he wants to know this kid. He wants to keep this kid close. He wants him to work for him, right? And then it says this, and he would not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now, Jonathan, the son, makes his covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and he gave it to David. So we don't know how much later this is, maybe a few months into their friendship. We're not really sure. But there's a moment that has passed or a little time that has passed. And then it says, now Jonathan has taken off of his robe and he, that he's wearing and he gives it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now there's a ton of significance here. And we're going to get around this a little bit. But I tell you that whole story to introduce you to this behind the scenes type of character, a young man named Jonathan. And he has a backstory. There's a lot to this guy. And we know very little of him going forward. There's some interactions that we see, but the entire next section of Israeli history or Israel's history is all about David. And Jonathan just plays this back seat to it all. His name is mentioned a few times here and there, but David is the man. David is the talk of the town. It says that the people gathered in the streets and they would cheer for the king. They would say, the king has his thousands, but then they would say this, but David has tens of thousands. And the king has conquered his thousands, but David has conquered his tens of thousands. And so you can see what's going to happen here, right? There's a growing tension in the relationship between David and King Saul. And we're going to learn that a young man named Jonathan was there every single step along the way. But I want to tell you something. I want to, I want to go back because apparently uh, Jonathan was with his father when, when watching this whole action in the valley that day, right? And, and he realizes at this very moment, there's something in his heart that jumps and, and he realizes that David is from God. That David has the call of God, the anointing of God in his life. And, and Jonathan knew right then and there that his job was to get behind David, to lift David, to work behind the scenes, to make sure David got to where God wanted him to go. And one of the things that we learn uh, is that Dave, uh, Jonathan is happy to play this supporting behind the scenes 
sort of role. But, but let me tell you something about Jonathan. Now, when we think of this, you go, okay, Jonathan must have been some sort of wimp just lying over because eventually David becomes king. And, and whose spot is, is the next king? It's Jonathan's spot. It is the son of the king's job to become the king. It is his role. It's his heir. It's his, it's his for the taking, right? So you, but I, and so you think if Jonathan's just willing to give this up, you think that guy's a wimp, but he is no wimp. He is not a guy who rolled over and played dead to anybody. But one of the things that we're going to learn about Jonathan was that he was a man after God's heart, just like David was. And so I want to take you into the backstory of Jonathan to learn a little bit about his character. And then we're going to hopefully learn a little bit about the kind of role that he was and the kind of man that he was in order to play this behind the scenes role. Is that cool with you? So I want to go back a couple months in Israel's, in Israel's history. I want to go backwards a couple months, a couple months into a, to another standoff between the armies of Israel and the Philistines. And this is absolutely fascinating. So it's found in the Bible book of 1 Samuel. So if you've got a Bible or a smartphone, I would love for you to look this up. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Check this out. Follow along. I'm just going to read some verses to you, make some comments along the way, and we're going to learn together. You all ready for this? This is one of the best stories in all of Scripture. This is great. You ready? Are you sure you're ready? You guys ready on video? All right, let's do it. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 14, 1 Samuel. It says, one day... Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, um, he says, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. So apparently they're here and like off in the distance, there's this outpost for the Philistine army, right? And he says, let's go over to the outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his who? Father. So something is stirring in Jonathan's heart, right? He's like, Dad, aren't you supposed to be doing something about these Philistines? Didn't God tell the king of Israel to drive out the Philistines? And didn't God say, if you drive out the Philistines, I will go with you? God says that to you. And what's, what do we find out that, that Saul's doing? It says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Listen to this. Under a pomegranate tree in Migron. It's a city, right? It's not a headache. It's, it's a city. Okay. Uh, it says, with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, uh, or whatever, I don't know, uh, it, who was wearing an ephod. I'm not even sure what an ephod is. Uh, he was the son of Ichabod's brother, Aetub, son of the Phineas, who is the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. Pause for a second. The reason I worked through all those crazy Hebrew names is because when I read this, now, if you're not like a Bible type person in the room, let me tell you, this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible. Because when these things were written, people can go, okay, so Saul was there and Jonathan was there and everything is made up. But they purposely, the writers of scripture purposely put names in there so that the people who are reading this can go, oh yeah, I remember him and I know him and oh, he was there that day. I remember I was in the crowd that day. I was one of the 600. Do you see what's going on here? You see what he's doing? He's layering truth into the writing of scripture for us. Y'all got that? Okay. So here's what he says. It says, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. And, and so again, you can see what's happening here. Jonathan is like, uh, you don't get an army together, 600 strong, just to sit around under a pomegranate tree. You get an army together to go and do what? Battle. You don't just sit around waiting when God has told you to move. Uh, and so Jonathan gets to this point where he says, forget it, let's go. And he talks to his armor bearer. You know what an armor bearer is? This guy's got the worst job in the army. He doesn't get the sword, he gets the shield. Think about this. 
He rolls out the, the upper guys, the warrior type of guys, the, the, the top dogs in the army. They get assigned an armor bearer who goes out into battle holding the shield one step at a time, trying to catch all the fiery darts and all the initial hits. Great job, right? Great job to have. And then it says this, verse four, check this out. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozaz and the other called Shanae. Um, it said, verse five, one cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other toward the south toward Geba. Jonathan, listen to this, verse six. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, this is crazy, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Okay. He says, let's go over there. And that was a comment that these were not men of God. He says, we got something that they don't. We got God's spirit with us. And then you're going to love this. He says this. This is crazy. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Like, I don't know. Let's just, you and me, go and attack the Philistines. And if we're lucky, maybe, possibly, God just might show up. I don't really know, but I think he might. I love him. I know that he is for us. He's not against us. And he's with us because those guys aren't even circumcised. And if they were godly men, they would be circumcised. And do you get what's going on here? He's like, all I know is I can't do this without God's help. Perhaps God's going to show up. And this young armor bearer has got to be flipping a lid right now. He's got to be going, me and you? We're not going to get the boys together? Nothing? No, just me and you. And then he says this little line. This is amazing. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I don't know if perhaps God's going to do something, but all I know is that God could do something. And if God wants to do something, nobody's going to stand in the way. Nobody. You got to love that, right? And then it says this, verse seven, do all that you have in mind. This is his armor bearer goes, okay, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. And this is another behind the scenes character right here. We could just camp out right here and we could take this guy's faith and we could just run with it for a little bit because this is bad to the bone kind of behind the scenes action right here. We don't even get this guy's name. And yet he's saying, I am with you. Me and you versus all of them. I am with you. I'll carry your little whatever, but, but I'm with you because wherever you go, I know that God is going to go with you, Jonathan. And so I just want to be a supporting role to you. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, I just think that's incredible, right? And Jonathan says, this is, this is incredible. He says, verse eight, it says, Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over to them and let them see us. That is not a good plan, right? It says, and if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up. So in other words, as we're approaching them, we're gonna just be out for everybody to see. And if they stop us and say, hold on, hold on, we think it's an advantage if we come down to you, we're just gonna wait here and they're gonna come down to us. That's gonna be great, right? Or he says, or, or, but if they say, come up to us, we will climb up the side of the mountain because we will be, it, it will be our sign from the Lord that, that God has given them to us or into our hands. Pause for a second. This does not seem like a good battle plan. Like if I'm in charge of the game, if I'm in charge of capture the flag, I'm like, okay, listen guys, we got to sneak, right? 
We want to catch them by surprise. It's the surprise attack. It's the don't let them see you until we're on top of them type of trick, right? That only makes sense. Who makes this kind of plan? Well, just let them see us. It'll be great. I'm sure it'll work out fine, right? Either way. But Jonathan says, here's the plan. We're going to let them see us. And we're going to trust God. We're going to just trust God in it all. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. It's a little insult, right? Verse 12, the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we will teach you a what? A lesson. So Jonathan says, this is great. He says to his armor bearer, let's go. Let's climb the hill. And think about this for a second. We're going to climb the mountain carrying shields and swords and armor, and we're going to climb up the hand over. It says that he climbs the mountain hand over fist. He's climbing up while they're throwing rocks down, while they're spitting on them, while they're shooting arrows at them. And Jonathan's like, this is the best plan ever. We're going to get up there, and we're going to cut their ankles off, right? Who has the advantage, the guy down below or the guy on top? In military, come on, you guys know this. The guy on top always has the advantage. It's always better to see the guy approaching, right? And so it says this, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet and his armor bearer was right behind him. And in the very least, I'm going, hey, it's your job to be out front, man, right? And Jonathan was, no, 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 I'm in. I'm all in and I'm gonna lead this charge. This is an amazing thing. And here's what we learned it says, it says that somehow and in some way, Jonathan and his armor bearer penetrate this fortress and it says that the fortress falls at the hand of just two men. Here's what it says. It says, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer fouled and killed behind him. So in other words, Jonathan was like, I'm taking the guys in the front. If anybody comes around back, you kill them. You got them. I'm just going to cut through the middle. This is pretty incredible. And then it says this, in the first attack, just the first attack, it says Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about the size of a half acre. And he just went for it. And then look at this, verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and in the field. It says that those in the outpost and in the raiding powers uh, parties, the ground shook and it was panic sent by who? And so God, what do he say? He says, perhaps, perhaps. And I don't know exactly what that looked like. All I know is that it was two against all of them. And not only the outpost was, was destroyed, but all the surrounding armies, they must have heard some sort of earthquake. They must have had something that was sent by who? By God. God showed up for the battle and did what man could not do. He showed up in Jonathan's life and did what Jonathan could not do for himself. And so, what do we learn from this behind-the-scenes kind of guy? What do we learn about Jonathan? Because if you read the whole backside of his story, like from David forward, he takes this very minor role, this backseat to David. He's there just kind of running liaison for David all the way through. But we learn a lot about the character of Jonathan from this story. And we learn a lot about the character of Jonathan from his life. And so I just want to unpack this a little bit. And and you may want to write a couple of these down because I think that this is the kind of man I want to be. And I'm thinking this might be the kind of person that some of you 
want to be. And this would be worth taking a picture of or writing down and thinking about this later during the week. I'm telling you, this is really going to be the thing that God wants to stir inside of you. Here's what we learned from, from, from Jonathan. He is bold and yet humble. He's bold and yet humble. Jonathan is no wimp. We see that, right? He is one bad dude. He is not afraid to rush into battle. He trusts God completely. He knows that, that, that God has commanded his father to take out the Philistines. And he's like going, if dad doesn't do the job, I'm going to do the job. He has a boldness about him. Can you see that? Anybody in the room? Can you see this? He, he doesn't even go wake up his dad. He just says, this is what I'm doing. Are you with me? And he's got this kind of audacious boldness about him. And remember this verse, and I love this. He says, come, let us go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. And perhaps, he says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He just has this boldness, and yet it's mixed with humility. Because he doesn't just go, hey, let's go. I'm going to do this and you're going to be along with me. And as long as you're with me, it's good. He's like, no, no, no. This is not because of me. I have very little to do with this. I know God's calling me and I'm going to do this, but I'm going to trust in who? I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust in God. God's got to show up. Perhaps God's going to show up for us. I just know that he can. And he's got this humility about him. Uh, look at this boldness and how it meets humility um, in chapter 18. Remember, this is right after the battle of the Philistines. And we learn that he's there and there's a connectedness of heart and soul. Uh, and then to, to, to David and Jonathan, right? And, and so somewhere there's a little time lapse that goes on because it says that they begin to develop basically this relationship. And then it, I want to remind you of these words. It says, and Jonathan he makes a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. Friends, do you, do you see what's going on here? This is a very symbolic moment where, where Jonathan is humble before David and a, king does not, a king's son does not give up his robe. A king's son does not give up his sword. A king's son does not give up the belt of the king. Do you realize that? But what was he doing? He was being humble and he's like, I'm making a covenant because I know what God is doing. And my job is not to be center stage anymore. My job is not to be the son of the king that becomes the king. But my job is to lift you. My job is to support you. My job is to do whatever I can to make sure God gets you where you need to go. And he has this humility about him. And he wants to see God do extraordinary things in his life, even though he's not going to be the king anymore. This is boldness with humility. And can I say this, friends? We need more of that in God's church. We need more of this in God's church where, where people have this boldness mixed with humility where they say, let's do this thing. Let's, let's build this thing together. Let's, let's, let's create this thing together. Let's move the kingdom of God together. And I'm not exactly sure like, what is all going to go on. And I'm not exactly sure who should be in charge. All I know is that I want to be the hands and feet of God. I want to be in the game. I want to be in the field. I want to be in the action. And I don't need to have my name in lights. I just need to show up for the battle and let God add the increase. Come on. Anybody with me? Anybody with me on this? And so I think the first thing we learn from, from Jonathan is that he is bold yet humble. He's bold yet humble. And here's the second thing. It seems like it's similar, but it's different. He, he's risky. He was risky 
yet confident. When I look at this guy, I'm like, whoo, he's a risk taker. He's not afraid of taking a risk. Remember that he says, uh, he says we're going to just stand out in plain view. It's going to be great. That's a little risky to me. That's just a little bit risky. Jonathan says, come on, we will cross over and let them see us. But listen, uh, his confidence is in God. He's risky, and yet his confidence is in God. It's, uh, risky doesn't have to mean stupid, right? Risky doesn't have to mean uh, that, that uh, people are, are just careless with the direction of their life. Risking something doesn't mean that you got to end up in the hospital, you got to end up broke, you got to end up alone in life. He's not talking about a stupid sort of a risk. I'm not talking about this kind of risk that just you throw caution to the wind and don't even think about things. I'm not talking about that at all. It is risk, yet confident in God. It's risk, but God's going to show up and do something because he is with us. It says this, but if they come down, remember this verse 10, it says, but if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Jonathan's bravery as he approached the enemy garrison was rooted in his faith. Y'all hear me? The reason he was willing to step out was because he knew God was with him. And he had spent a lifetime developing his relationship with God, learning to trust God, learning to be with God. One of the writers of the New Testament says it like this, and you're going to love this. It's, it's found in the book of Romans 8, 31, I think it is. It says, if God is for us, who can stand against? And friends, when you get your faith around a God who is big, if you get your life around a God that you can trust, if you get your hope and around a God that can carry you when you think nothing else can carry you, you're going to come out on the other side going, who can stand against? And you're going to be willing to move forward. And the problem is with so many of us inside the church, even inside of our church, we think, oh, somebody else needs to do it because I don't have the gifts to stand up on this stage. I don't have the gifts to stand up in front of kids or I'm too afraid to even go and, and become a small group leader for a bunch of fifth grade girls. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. I can't risk that. What if I fail? What if I try to do something and get involved with this kingdom of God movement and I fail? What if I try to do the lights back there and I hit the wrong button and everything goes black on Pastor Jay? <laughs> if God before you, who can stand against? Come on. Who can stand against? It's not risk that is stupid. It's risk rooted in faith. It's rooted in seeing a God who has delivered in the past and who can deliver again. I think we sang a song about that today, didn't we? Didn't we? Do we believe it? Let him move you into battle. Let him move you into action. Don't stay on the sidelines of faith anymore. Don't do it. Here's the last thing, is that he was loyal, yet did what was right. He was loyal, yet did what was right. If you were to go forward in Jonathan's life, he was in the middle between his father and David. Matter of fact, when Saul realized that David understood that he was going to be the king, you know what happened? 
It says that Saul became increasingly jealous toward David and he ends up literally trying to take David's life. And then when Jonathan stood in the gap trying to say, hey, hey, father, father, please don't go after God's anointed one. David is the next king. You're just gonna have to accept that. You know what it says that Saul did to his own son? It says he tried to murder his own son. Could you imagine trying to take the life of your own son? And that's what happened in, in Saul's heart. And the thing that we learned going forward is that Jonathan, when you look at his life, it was so different. He was a kind of man that his father was not. He was a man full of integrity. He was a man full of character. He was a man full of nobility. And this is what it takes to be a kind of high, behind the scenes kind of a player. And we learned that, that but, but David, or excuse me, Jonathan was loyal. He was loyal to his father and he was loyal to David at the same time. As a matter of fact, listen to this. Jonathan dies in battle alongside of his two brothers and his father fighting off the Philistines. So he was loyal. He was loyal. But his highest loyalty was to God. Above position, above being the heir, above his own family. He did the right thing. Matter of fact, there is this one little tiny verse um, that that, that, that uh, Jonathan spoke and he speaks it to David. And it was very interesting. David was running from Saul and it says, uh, it says that David didn't trust Jonathan completely and he most certainly didn't trust Saul and, and like Saul didn't trust Jonathan and it was like a bunch of mistrust, right? All the way around. And it was a brokenness all the way around. And Jonathan says something to David that kind of just shows his character. And I think that this is the kind of people we need to be. Listen to what he says. He says in, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 23, it's a very small little line, but it says everything that we need to know about his character. It says, remember, he's talking to David, remember David, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. In other words, I'm not gonna lie to you because God is watching me. I'm not gonna backstab you because God is between us. I'm not gonna go around you. I'm not gonna fight you because God is here among us. And friends, listen, yeah, if we get to this point where we realize that God is with us, <coughs> when we realize that God is with us, we will move forward and we will be happy to do whatever he calls us to do. We'll be happy to do the right thing even if our name never gets into lights. Amen? Amen. Yeah. And so friends, uh, over this series, we have been trying to end each week by celebrating uh, somebody in the life of our church who has just stepped up and quietly served and has made us a better people because of it, who has helped move our our, our, our experiences and our church forward in the kingdom of God. And I just want to introduce you to, well, I'm just going to call him the vacuum guy. We've had this problem for quite a while now, surprisingly with vacuums. Uh, every time we would go to use one, it was full. The belt was broke, something was broke on it, handles would fly off, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, we were tired of it, we were sick of it. Every time we wanted to come in and clean and get out, there was always something. 
remember Metro having a service saying, hey, we could use any help we could get, you know, in the beginning. And I knew that was the time to, you know, go over to the Connection Center, see what I could do. So I went over there, just kind of listed all my interests, you know, aspiring astronaut, chemical engineering, you know, what do you think I could think of, pyrotechnician. So you can imagine my uh, surprise when I got a call from Michelle a couple days later, you know, asking me to join the clean team. I definitely didn't know how I was going to start with fixing vacuums, uh, but it was, uh, it's been an experience, so I went over there with her and was shown uh, all these vacuums, and it's like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to do this or not, but, you know, a few YouTube videos later, and uh, no, no problem. <laughs> he empties the vacuums, he cleans them, he does maintenance on them, so Every time one of our volunteers walks into that closet to grab a vacuum, it's actually working. I think my mom kind of raised me with a servant's heart my whole life. I just always wanted to kind of give up my time whenever I saw a need, and it's just been a it's been a blessing, um, especially being able to teach my my son. You know, just about giving your time, and I remember. Uh, being with him or leaving and he's like they didn't even pay you for this <laughs> but he's nine and it's fun bringing him up there because he'll put on the like the backpack vacuum and he'll be running around the, the church like he's playing ghostbusters and stuff and it's pretty cool it's been a really good experience he does something that most of us take for granted and we are so very grateful for what he does Come on. Let's give it up for Brian, the vacuum guy. Can you believe that? I mean, most people, you know, you, you never even think, well, who does clean the carpets and how do those vacuums stay running? Well, with buildings this size and with people like you who spill everything everywhere, got to be cleaned. And we got faithful people. You know, I come in these doors and it blows me away. You know, these ladies or guys just cleaning the windows, and I'll say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Without you, I wouldn't even want to be here. I mean, you make this place look great. And this is what they say all the time. They say, Pastor Jay, don't even thank us, because if we'll do what we do, and you do what you do, and it's all good. We'll all work together. I don't want to do what you do. And I'm like, good, because I don't want to do what you do, right? <laughs> and we're a team. We're a church. We're a body. We're a family together. So let's give it up for everybody on the clean team. Clean team, we love you. We love you. Way to go. Way to go. All right. Uh, behind the scenes. Amen? Okay. So let's stand together. I want to pray for us as we get out of here. And uh, if it's okay with you, we're going to have one more week of this. Is that cool? Okay. We're going to find out who's behind the scenes. Okay. I'm excited about this. I want to tell you something that's coming up. You're going to hear about it on Facebook, hopefully this week as well. Um, but we are going to be launching, in a couple weeks, a series called I Doubt God. I Doubt God. And it is all driven toward uh, folks who struggle with belief. It's all driven toward skepticism and uh, maybe agnosticism or, or atheism. And, and we're going to tackle some of the hardest questions because uh, there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't get people who, who come to me and say, you know what, I, I want to believe. I just have so many doubts. I just have so many struggles with, with God. And they come in all sorts of different forms. So we're going to just tackle it straight up. And here's what I want you to do. I want you 
to maybe begin to talk in your family or your friendships or people at work who might struggle with this thing called faith. And they, they have good reasons for it. And I don't want you to necessarily get in an argument with them or fight them about anything. But what I'd like for you to do is just to say, if you have a question, like if there's one thing that you could just land on when it comes to, to your struggle to believe, what would it be? And then you're going to listen to them. And then you're going to write it down. And then you're going to email us. Okay? And I'll have it on Facebook and tell you where to email it. And I'm hoping to get hundreds of questions from your conversations. I'm going to sort through them all. And I'm going to try to pick out the biggest, baddest, toughest, most frequently asked questions about this thing called faith. And we are going to tackle them for several weeks in a row. Is that cool? Okay. Is that cool? All right. So you pray for me about this. And I'm going to pray that you begin to have these conversations in your work. Okay, God, we love you. We come before you tonight. I pray that your spirit would have visited us. If there are guests in this room, people brand new to the faith, I, I, I hope and I pray, God, that your spirit would just speak to them, uh, especially just let them know that they are welcomed here, that we love them. We invite them into this space to ask questions. Uh, I pray for those who are regular here who call Metro their home, uh, that your heart would stir inside of their heart and that they would respond to you. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen.